Hi, friend. Welcome to Open at the Top. I'm your host, Melanie McCulley. I believe that regardless of what your past looks like, we each have the opportunity to begin again in every moment. I've learned that when we choose love first, the possibilities waiting on the other side of our fear are infinite. Each week, I'll share my own wild and unedited stories of what radical change and transformation can look like along with having the raw, deeper conversations with inspirational, game-changing guests. My intention is to inspire you and guide you into your next phase of becoming the unique, beautiful version of you that you were always meant to be, and to lovingly remind you that we each have the power to turn our pain into a purpose-driven life filled with joy and meaning. That unfolding journey begins now. All it takes is the willingness to remain open at the top. Let's dive in. Hello and welcome back to Open at the Top. This is episode three and I welcome you. Thank you for sharing your time with me once again. And I wanted to begin by just acknowledging the feedback that I've had so far just in my first two episodes. It's been heartwarming, it's been surprising, and it's also been a little overwhelming in that I've heard from people that I haven't heard from in 25 plus years, plus people that I don't even know, that it's already reached and that it's made an impact so far. And the feedback is they want to hear more. And that completely solidifies my whole intention of this podcast. And that is to help others somehow find a way to transform their pain into a meaningful life and to somehow find a way to use that to lift them up, to open them up, to become more empathetic and to somehow find a way to give back. And so that is my intention and I'm always coming back to that intention of why I'm doing this. And so thank you for all of those who have left reviews, who have DM'd me, who have emailed me, who have left comments I mean, it's just so beautiful and it's a confirmation that this is needed. And so thank you. Thank you for your feedback and, uh, and your encouragement and your support because it, it helps fuel me to continuing to step into my own authenticity and having the courage to speak up and to tell my own truth and my experiences. So thank you for that. And thank you for being here with me. And so we're going to dive right in. The title for this episode is PTW, Post-Traumatic Wisdom. And that just came to me from a podcast that I myself was listening to on one of my walks. That's my favorite time to listen to others' podcasts is when I'm walking. And it was actually one of the newer Super Soul podcasts from Oprah, where she had Dr. Bruce Perry on talking about post-traumatic wisdom. And they just recently wrote a book that has just been released called What Happened to You. And it's about the question of what happened to us in our childhood and our most formidable years. And instead of asking the question, what's wrong with you? The question is what happened to you? And this is where it's so powerful to be able to find a way to share your experience, your story, your personal and very special, truthful explanation of what has happened in your life. And it's a very scary thing to do because a lot of us, I'll just speak for myself, 
thinks that there's something wrong with me. I never fit in. I never felt like I belonged. I always felt different than everyone else. Like I wasn't enough. And I had a lot of, for most of my life, post-traumatic stress and trauma uh, in ways that I didn't know how to make sense of things that had happened to me and things that I had witnessed in my early childhood. So coming back to the name of post-traumatic wisdom, what a beautiful take on that, right? So what he says is, and I'm just going to paraphrase some of the things that he said. I don't want to direct quote, but what I got from it was post-traumatic wisdom is when you get to a place where you're able to use all of the things, all of the experiences that you've had in your life, whether good or bad, seemingly good or bad in your life, and you allow yourself to have wisdom from that. You allow yourself to gain true, palpable wisdom that allows you to thrive and heal and lift you higher. And then hopefully what you do with that is to help share that message to help others, to serve in others' rise in their own healing. And so I just really, really love that. If you haven't listened to that episode, I highly recommend it. It's the Dr. Bruce Perry Super Soul podcast episode, and I think it just came out like a week or so ago. And so with that thought, you know, if you're able to get through your own personal adversity by finding a really good support system, someone to help you move through those parts of you that are holding on to so much pain and a lot of times secrecy and find a safer place to land in, you can look back and you can reflect And you're able to take what you've learned and use all of that and see the world differently, see your family differently, see people in your life that may at one point have caused you deep, deep pain and to be able to see it differently and be able to use your pain and transform it to a graceful power and help other people heal as you continue to heal. And I've heard a couple other people say this. But the most transformative people I've ever known, every single one of them has had personal pain and traumatic experiences that was the core element of who they became. But the difference is that they didn't allow it to crush them. I'm not going to say for a moment that all of the things that I've experienced and I've gone through have not at certain times in my life seemingly crushed me because it did. Because I didn't have the tools yet. I didn't have the support. I didn't have a new way of believing, a new way of knowing, a new way of loving myself in such a way that I was never taught how to, that once I was able to learn that it doesn't have to take me down, I don't have to be a victim of it, and I don't have to treat others poorly because of my experiences, it has allowed me the freedom and the peace to be able to make sense of all of it and to be able to show up in life with a true purpose. And there's a way that we're able to learn how to carry the burden, to carry it but not be owned by it, not be taken down by it. And the truth about that, the small fine print here, when I say that, you can learn how to carry the burden, is that it never goes away. 
And that's not what I ever wanted to hear. And that's not what anybody ever wants to hear going into really having the courage to start learning how to make sense of their past or to begin to really flip over that rock and see what's underneath about how to begin to learn how to heal from it. The thing is, is that we're never free of the distress or the depression or the anxiety that comes with being human, right? But it doesn't have to destroy you. As you begin to look deeper into those parts of yourself and to do the work around that wound, the woundedness of who you feel that you've become or that you've been, is that it doesn't have to destroy you. You you learn more tools. You learn tools that when it comes back up again in your life, because it comes back up. I have stuff that happens in my life through relationships, through work, through even showing up through this platform. All those feelings of not being good enough, being afraid, afraid of being seen, afraid of being judged, just all the fear, right? I have and I've had so much support to help guide me to this place of knowing that that those old thoughts are that BS I talked about in episode one, those belief systems that aren't true. So that's what this is about, is finding the post-traumatic wisdom in what you've experienced. And it takes practice and it takes support and it takes time, but it is absolutely possible. And so I hope that offers something to you because what it allows you to have through that process is it allows you to have a tremendous amount of empathy, not only for yourself, which is the most important person to have this for, that feeling of empathy and compassion and kindness and grace and love and gentleness, but to also to have that completely for others who are struggling and where you can lend some of your wisdom. And in that sharing and in that lending of wisdom, it helps you along your own path of freedom and of ascension. So I offer that to you because that's where I want to start this episode from because I'm piggybacking from episode two where I began to speak about how I was raised as one of Jehovah's Witnesses, which is extremely strict, extreme belief religion, very fear-based, fear-controlled, and not something I ever truly believed, but believed because it was my parents told me And it was because that was my whole reality at the time. And now as I begin to go into some of the other things that transpired after I left home at 15 without any tools, without any knowing of how the real world worked, there were areas that I I needed to start being able to become honest about that upbringing because it it trickles into a lot of the choices. Well, I would say all of the choices that I made after that that were very detrimental to me. And that's part of the story leading up to it. The pain that I talk about that I experience or the pain that you experience in your life with whatever it is that you might have that you hold on to, we never have the reason to judge anybody else's pain. All pain is the same in regards to it being personal and real and palpable and we never devalue that for another person. So this is where a really open, soft, listening heart comes in to all those who have experienced something tragic in their life for them, because it is something that is real with a capital R to them. But there's also on the other side of that help 
healing and ascension from that as we move through it together. Because we're always moving forward and changing. That's how we are wired. As a human and our biological system, we are meant to be moving forward. So we're not meant to stay stuck. And it's never too late to rewrite the script of your life. So even as I begin to share more of my past and most of this today that I'm going to share with you uh, happened before the age of 18. And that was really where the big, big, big chunks of uh, my story happened when I was, you know, in, in my teenage years. So I'm going to pick up right there. So I moved out at 15 and when I moved out, Like I had said in episode two, I had never really been in public school. I had never really associated with anyone else that was outside of the Jehovah's Witness realm. I had been in that private school. I had been homeschooled. You know, I wasn't really allowed to do anything outside of my home without a designated chaperone. And it was very constricting. And I would find myself paying some of the older girls in my church, and they called the congregation, my allowance money and give them gas money just so that I could go and visit two of my quote unquote unbelieving family members who are my sisters because I wasn't allowed to see them or talk to them. So right before I moved out, there was a lot of that going on where I would sneak just so I could see my sister, one in particular. And it was really painful. It was, it just always felt not right to be so cut off from the people that you love the most, your family. And so that really instilled a deep hatred and a resentment for the way that I was raised, what I was raised to believe, how I saw family members being treated and other people in our congregation being treated that I just knew wasn't right. And so it was my, at that very young 14-year-old age, I mean, so young, man, I think of like, my niece right now who just turned 15 and her moving out on her own, like it's not even a question. Like you're not meant to be out on your own that young. And, but I really pushed it. I really made it as difficult as possible for my parents to keep me home because I was determined to get out. Even though I had no plan and I had no tools and I had no solid support in a way that was really going to help me excel moving forward. So after many times of me trying to run away and being brought back home, my parents, especially my dad at this point, basically gave up and was like, just go. You know, if you can't follow the rules of my house and follow the laws of Jehovah, then you can't live here anymore. And my brother and sister-in-law at the time really fought for that not to happen. But I left anyways. And I moved in with my 27-year-old sister at the time who really did go to bat for me. You know, I have I have to give credit where credit's due. She was living in a one-bedroom apartment at the time. She ended up getting a two-bedroom, two-bathroom, got me new clothes, bought me a new bed, enrolled me in public school, the public high school that was in the area that I lived in with her. And she really did try to give me structure. But at that point, I was I was just so hungry to experience everything. And I was a rebel without a clue. (laughs) And there was no reeling me in at that point. My sister would, you know, bring me to school in the morning, drop me off, 
I would watch her car leave the parking lot and I would immediately find the kids that I was going to skip class with that day. And that's pretty much how it began for me at a very young age, 15. I was skipping class. I was already, you know, experimenting with weed and drinking beer and smoking cigarettes and hanging out with the older kids and just felt so lost because I was this new girl in this high school and nobody knew where I came from and I was different and my hair was colored a different color and just I was like this different person to other kids and it was really hard for me because I was just trying to be cool and trying to fit in and I got a lot of backlash from a lot of the meaner girls that were in high school at the time. They made it pretty rough on me because I never really belonged to any group or any clique in high school. I liked everybody. I wanted to hang out with everyone and that wasn't received well because I wanted to hang out with everybody. I wanted to get to know everyone. And so I had a I had a, a tough time when I was in school. So when I entered into high school, I was a sophomore. And going through that time, uh, I was obviously behind my sister's back, smoking and drinking and skipping class. And there was always an issue with that. And I was a total rebel. I ended up having a huge party at my sister's house while she was gone and super disrespectful. And it had just gotten to the point where she had had it. She just couldn't handle it anymore. So uh, I was asked to leave her house. And I think I, I was 16 at that point. So when I left my one sister's house, I moved in with another sister. And that is really where things began to get worse. Fun, but worse. That was 1993 or 94, I believe. And my sister was heavily involved in the rave scene at that time. And it was super fun, but super dangerous. And I was going to raves and hanging out with people who were way older than me. I was 16 years old and pretty much the age group I was around was 21 to 25. And most everyone was heavily on drugs and managing that kind of lifestyle or dealing drugs. And so that was the lifestyle I quickly got accustomed to. Like my first experience of going to a rave nightclub, I was dosed with LSD and MDMA, which is ecstasy at the same time. And that was my first experience with that kind of drug experience. I don't even know what to call it. They actually call it trolling, tripping and rolling at the same time. But here, here's the deal. I'm going to share with you what happened and I'm not going to glorify it. But from coming from a place where I couldn't listen to music, I wasn't really allowed to dance and express myself in the way that I'd ever really wanted to. I could never really be who I ever wanted to be because we just couldn't. We had to fit into a mold in the way that we were raised. And that never worked for myself or really any of my siblings. And so that period of time when I first started to experiment with these type of drugs, it opened me up. I felt love in a way that I'd never experienced. I saw things that I had never experienced. It opened up a part of my brain, a part of my heart that felt so free. And the way that I could dance and the way that I felt affection with and for other people was amazing. It was like my own little Woodstock with the festivals we would go to and the concerts and the music and, you know, the relationships I had at the time. And it really was one of the most amazing experiences of my life 
But like with any long-term type of drug use, it eventually stops working for you. And it got to that in the midst of me being in that type of environment with people who are dealing drugs and in that world of doing drugs all the time. It was definitely a lifestyle. I was selling LSD at high school uh, and also taking acid at high school. I don't recommend it. Not fun. And obviously now my life had changed dramatically. I didn't really have any structure and I was completely on my own, if you will, as far as trying to figure it out. At 16, you really shouldn't have to have it all figured out or know all these things that a sound of mind adult should be there helping you with. So long story short, cocaine, heroin, mushrooms, LSD, MDMA, weed, and pharmaceuticals quickly became my normal way of life. Uh, When I say heroin, I never shot it, thank God, but I was experimenting with snorting it. And one thing I knew for sure is that I didn't like it. And the only reason I share that with you is because it's going to come full circle in a little bit with something that happened to me later on. And as far as alcohol goes, I never even had any alcohol until I was closer to my 21st or even after my 21st birthday because it was just a drug-fueled lifestyle. And people that I knew were ODing, people that I knew were dying, people I knew were becoming narcs and wearing wires on each other and going to prison. And this whole beautiful, awesome, dreamlike fantasy of a world I was in quickly started to turn dark. And it was getting bad quickly. In the midst of that time, I got terribly sick. And this was when I was in my first six weeks of my junior year of high school. And I got so sick that when I went to a nearby crappy walk-in clinic, I was misdiagnosed by the doctor, which then I was just sick longer. And I ended up missing so much school in my first six weeks of my junior year that basically they were like, I wouldn't graduate with my class and I'd have to go to summer school. And at that time in my life, I just couldn't even think about it. I just, I had no real direction. And so I chose to drop out. So I dropped out after my first six weeks of my junior year. And that's when things got real hairy. Like I was starting to shoplift just to be able to get my needs met with makeup or deodorant or food or, you know, feminine products. I had food scams where I would figure out how to get food from certain places or, you know, it was just a, it became like a survival, a way of surviving. And in the midst of this, my mom and my older sister, the one who I'd moved out from, uh, we had kind of disappeared and dropped off the map, my other sister and I. And so they set out to find me and they did end up finding me. I was living a few hours away living on a mattress on the floor of someone's house and had been doing some couch surfing. And they had brought me in for a drug evaluation. And at that point, I had talked my way out of it. And then I had to go back and live with my parents for a short period of time. And this was right around uh, when I was turning 17. And during that time, I was still expected to go back to their church meetings with them and to participate somewhat in the way they still live their life. And like I had lived so many lifetimes by then from that almost two years I was out. I had experienced a lot, a lot of heartbreak, a lot of trauma, 
a lot of things that I could never tell my parents that I had already just been through. So it was very hard being back in their house, living under their guidelines and structures of their religion again. And I just had so much hatred and so much resentment and anger built up that I would lie and say that I was going to do one thing and I would go out and do drugs all night long with my old friends. And so that is what brings me to right after my 17th birthday, about a month after I turned 17, it truly was like any other night that I would sneak out and say I was going to do whatever I was doing, spending the night at a friend's house. And I would go and take massive amounts of ecstasy and do massive amounts of cocaine and stay out all night long. And it was like any other night. Uh, the, the night, the night that I had my accident and I had gone out and I'd done a lot of blow and taken way too many pills. And I was at an after hours party. A friend of mine had come in from out of town to visit me and he took me long story short, when we were at this after hours party and there was a ton of people there. I had gone into a random bedroom where there was two guys who I didn't know, and they had some drugs, and I asked them for some blow. And they said, sure, here you go. And they carved out two lines for me, and I did them real quick. And the moment I did it, I knew it wasn't cocaine. And one thing I had always learned from my drug buddies was that you don't mix uppers and downers. You just don't do it. And I was more of an upper kind of girl, so I knew that I didn't like anything that made me feel down. And what I had just ingested was China white heroin. And what I also knew from being in that drug culture was that if you ever were to snort it, it's like the most minuscule amount. And they had given me two lines of it. So with the amount of substances that were already in my system, this is now probably 8 or 9 a.m., the following morning, everybody's still partying. By the way, that's not an odd thing in the drug world. And I remember thinking, well, first of all, oh shit, you know, I can't, I know this isn't going to be good. And I remember going into the bathroom and washing my face and brushing my teeth. I had a little backpack on and then going out to a couple of people who I knew who they were and just telling them to keep an eye on me because I needed to take a nap because I had to go back to my parents that day. And that was the last thing I remember until a couple days later. And that is one of those moments that I tell the story now. And that was a really, really crazy moment because I remember that clearly. I remember that house. I remember the people there. I remember there were some people that I really loved there and the guy who brought me that day, I had a massive crush on him and uh, it was, it was actually just a really special night. And then this happened. And in the midst of someone hearing a gurgling noise in the corner of the room and realizing that I was turning purple and my lungs were filling up with fluid and I was unconscious, pretty much everyone left the owner of the house, everybody there, the DJ that was spinning in the kitchen At this point, it was probably much later in the morning. But the person that did stay stay was the guy who brought me and his buddy. 
And this was before cell phones, so they really had to figure out, you know, where to find a phone in the house and figure out the address. We were an hour away from where I lived. And he performed CPR on me and kind of kept me alive, if you will, until the paramedics got there. And they worked on me right there and uh, had to inject my heart and, uh, you know, bring me back. But obviously I was unconscious for all of this. And that was a wild story to hear told back to me, because obviously I am telling you what was told to me that happened. And I didn't have an ID on me or anything like that. So getting me to the hospital and then figure out who I was, my poor friend of mine had to call my sister and then he didn't even know my last name. And so it was a really wild thing. And they had to, police had to drive to my poor parents' house and tell them that I was over an hour away in ICU and I had had a massive drug overdose. And so begins a very long journey of realizing, first of all, when I woke up, I didn't know who I was. I had no memory of myself and I was extremely angry. After I left ICU, they had to bring me to what's called a detox, what's a detox center because they won't place you in a drug treatment or anything like that until you are detoxed off the drugs. And I remember them taking me in this van into a chain linked security building. And I had these little things that tied my wrists together and they had to do a full evaluation on me. And I was there for close to two weeks in detox And I was with some really hardcore kids. Now, remember, I'm under 18, so I'm with minors now. And these are kids that are hardcore on crack and girls that are working the street and that are homeless. And and in my mind, I was just partying and raving and just having a good time. I, I wasn't trying to hurt myself. But was I? I mean, doing that amount of drugs, knowingly, being very conscious, if, if I was, I would not have been doing all of that because I was in pain. I was hurting. And I can know that and see that now. So I definitely wasn't supposed to be alive. My heart had stopped through that process. And now I'm in detox and trying to talk my way out of it again, like I did the first time. And they were like, no, this was a big deal. You're going to be in drug treatment. So basically, through a couple more holding facilities to get me placed in a drug treatment facility, a live-in drug treatment facility, by the way, uh, for minors. I entered into a really fantastic place in St. Petersburg, Florida called PAR. And I was supposed to be there for close to a year until my 18th birthday. But I ended up only spending three months in-house getting my GED while I was there and getting my driver's license because I still didn't have my driver's license. And then doing outpatient after that. And it really literally changed my life, that whole situation. My family and I, mostly my mom and dad and my grandmother at the time when she was alive and she was around, we went to family counseling, which within the Jehovah's Witness religion, you don't go to therapy or counseling outside of the people in in their religion. So this was something very powerful and healing for my family and I to experience. And I do believe that it brought us closer together in a different way. And I did experience a shift in that. My grandfather was passing away of cancer while I was in 
treatment. So I was able to go on a couple of, you know, four hour passes and then like a six hour pass to go say goodbye to him, go back to the treatment center, put my uniform back on. You know, we're talking about the kind of treatment center where you can't use a razor, you can't have deodorant, you can't have anything that has alcohol in it out of fear of someone who might try to hurt themselves or use some sort of personal product as a way to get high. So it was extremely regulated and everything was, uh, you know, you're watched doing everything. But it was still, to this day, I feel like one of the most important times in my life. And I would never want to do it over again, but I wouldn't change any of it because I do feel that there was a turning point with bringing my family closer together in a way that they hadn't in some time. And that's how I was introduced to the 12-step program because they would bring us on the bus outside of the treatment center and bring us to meetings or a meeting would come to us. And that was the first time I was ex- uh, exposed to the 12 steps, Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous. And at the time, I, I didn't want to be sober. I still didn't think that I had a problem. I just felt like something had gone awry and I took the wrong thing. Later on in my life, I realized that there was a problem. But again, I, I was definitely in denial about a few things, but that was what happened up until 17 and I ended up graduating and getting out at 17 and only lived with my parents for a couple of months and then moved in with a girlfriend of mine who took me in and all the while of this too, which is pretty interesting, I had had a front desk job at a hair salon in Tampa, which is where I lived. And my boss, who is still one of my most favorite and cherished people in my life today, at the time, uh, knew I was a kid that was in trouble, even before I had my accident. And when that did happen with me, he let my dad know to tell me when I was in treatment that when I got out, I still had my job. And he did. He saved my job for me. And when I graduated from the treatment center and got out and basically had to start over, and I tried to start going to community college and, you know, got back to my hair salon. I was a front desk girl. He kept my job for me and he believed in me and he always has. and He still does. And you just, you know, you have those people that show up for you. You have those people that are, the, are like these little messengers of truth that believe in you more than you believe in yourself. And I've had so many people like that whether it be for long periods of time or just short moments that could see the light and the truth in me beyond what the current condition looked like. And I'm going to pause there as far as telling my story, but I want to share with you how powerful that is in recapping that, but also seeing and speaking about all of it where there's there's these little bits of of truth and like breadcrumbs that even then were beginning to be laid out for me as a foundation for healing. I didn't die that day. I wasn't supposed to. Why didn't a lot of the other young folks that I was partying with back then, all in the name of fun, why did they pass and why am I still alive? And obviously I wasn't able to think that deeply about it back then at the time, but I know for sure now I can't just take all of that in vain. I can't do nothing with that. That there is a greater message that I feel responsible to share. And that is that no matter what your past experiences look like, no matter what, 
that there's always an opportunity to know what your story is, to be able to tell your story, to talk about what happened, what happened to you, but to also not be owned by it, not be ruled by it, to not be destroyed by it, to not be ashamed of it, to allow that time in your life, that trauma, and to turn it into wisdom. And that is how I began this episode was the post-traumatic wisdom. And as I move into our next episode together, I'll talk about what happened once I got out of treatment and what life looked like almost immediately after that. But all of these little nuggets, all these little things I share because there's goodness in all of them and I'm not ashamed of any of it. And I know, like I know, like I know in my heart that all the dots are connected here, that it all has meaning, it all has purpose, and there is love within all of it. And with all the players that were there to support me through that, like my parents and my sister and the counselors and my grandmother and the people who showed up, you know, some of the friends that really showed up for me, my, my boss at the time, you know, I had so much love around me. Even in the midst of me being one angry girl, man, I was so angry and resentful and had so many unresolved issues with so many things, but I still had people show up for me and I'm so grateful for that. But I'm able to see that now. I'm able to see the truth and the wisdom that was always and the love that was always existing, even in the midst of seeming chaos and a lot of pain at the time. So I'm going to end there. And I look forward to being with you again in the next episode four. And please just know that you are so loved and so supported here. And I'm sending you the biggest hug. I can't wait to be with you in our next episode. Bye for now, my friend. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Open at the Top. If you totally dug what you heard today and you found it to be valuable, please share this with a friend. And of course, if you haven't done so already, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast player. If you have any questions for me or comments, any topic ideas, or if you might even want to be a guest on my show, you can reach me directly at melaniemcully.com. And please don't forget to connect with me on social media. It's at Melanie McCulley on both Instagram and Facebook. Until next time.